following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, May 8th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Good to see you guys this morning. Uh, my name is Robert. I am one of the pastors here at Redemption Hill, and it's my privilege to spend time with you this morning in God's Word. And I'll say this as we get going. Um, Happy Mother's Day, you know, it is a special morning, Um, but I'll be super honest with you. There is always a tension on Mother's Day Sunday, every single year. And it doesn't sound like it should be that way, but every single Mother's Day Sunday, there's a tension because do you do a Mother's Day sermon? Is that what you should do? You know, if you come from a a more mainline tradition uh, where there are a lot of annual church holidays and there's a, a calendar around what you do, it's not a holiday. And so all of my mainline friends are always in this thing like, well, it's not actually a holiday, so do I do a, a sermon on it? But yet, it's a massively important morning, uh, and, and culturally, it's a, it's a massively important reality. And so do you take an entire morning to, to talk about it and to celebrate it? And there's this tension because for a lot of people every single year, uh, Mother's Day brings up a lot of mixed feelings. You know, there are many uh, who will gather here this morning or listen online who, for them this year, Mother's Day is challenging because they lost their mom this year. There are mothers who will be here this morning who lost children this year. There are women here this morning who long to be a mom and for different reasons and different circumstances in their life, they're not yet been able to do that. And then there are moms here who are celebrating the, the gift of a family and children that God has given them and it's a joyful day and there's just this mixed bag of what Mother's Day actually brings up for everybody. So there's always a tension when it comes to Mother's Day Sunday, do you do a Mother's Day sermon or not? And at least in our Western culture, the church has tended to try for seasons to do it, but what happens is we tend to hallmark Sunday morning, Mother's Day Sunday morning, and it gets so thin there's really no substance to it at all, or we don't do it, and that can be easily misunderstood, and you can be taken the wrong way, and that's kind of how it's tended to happen here. So here's what I'm going to do for a couple of minutes as we move into our text this morning, because it's, it's going to relate. I want you to be very clear. Uh, I want to be clear with you up front so that there's no confusion when we don't do a full-on Mother's Day Sunday sermon in the next 35 minutes, right? I want you to be very clear on this. All moms are essential and honored in the scriptures. I don't want you to miss that as we go on this morning. All moms are essential and honored in the scriptures. There is no greater honoring of not just women and and the female gender, but of motherhood in itself than the very story of the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God to this earth, taking on the form of man, being born to Mary, being born to a woman. In the incarnation itself, God honored women and motherhood in a way that nothing else could. If you just think about it, the very thing that in our broken culture we idolize, the the intimacy between a husband and a wife was completely bypassed in the story of the incarnation and God honored women and motherhood, the two things we tend to diminish in our story and in our culture. 
There is no greater honoring and dignity of it than, than that itself. And you can just read the stories and continue to go through and find Paul just bringing honor and, and dignity even to Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, for their willingness to pass on, not just to give birth and to raise and to care for Timothy, but to, to pass on the glories of the gospel to him. And then there's my favorite, my, my favorite just reminder of the way the scriptures honor all, and it's an expansive all, all moms in scripture. And it's in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. Romans 16 is always this weird chapter. When you preach Romans, what do you do with it? It's all Paul's tell them hello and greet them for me. And in Romans 16, 13, Paul says to greet Rufus, right? That's a fun one. Greet Rufus. And he assumed that everyone in the church in Rome would know Rufus. And he says, greet Rufus. But he also says, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. And the fascinating thing is that if you go and do a little digging right there, you're like, that's an interesting story. But, but Rufus is someone people in the church in Rome would have understood. They would have known him. He, he must have been a, a name they would have known, which is curious because in Mark's gospel, which was written to a primarily Roman audience, in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 15, you get the story of Jesus' crucifixion. And there's this moment in the story when Jesus just can no longer bear the burden of that beam on his shoulders as he's walking to the hill. He's been beaten, he's been whipped, he's been worn down physically in a way we can't imagine. And so they command a, a, a stander by, someone who's there. His name was Simon the Cyrene. Do you remember that story, if you know the, the story of the crucifixion? They tell Simon the Cyrene to carry his beam, his cross for him, the rest of the way. And when Mark writes this, Mark says this, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country. And then this little parenthetical statement in Mark chapter 15, he says, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Because the people who would have gotten Mark's gospel in the church in Rome would have known who Alexander and Rufus were. They were the son of Simon the Cyrene, which means that Rufus's mom, who Paul said to greet, who was a mother to him, was whose wife? Simon's. What must have that day been like? Simon carries the cross of Jesus the rest of the way. Maybe she saw it. Maybe the boys, maybe Alexander and Rufus, maybe they saw their dad do this. I don't know. Maybe their dad went home. He went home changed. Who knows what the conversations were like. But years would come when a man who would persecute the church that grew up out of that death and resurrection violently named Saul, who would throw people into prison, would see them killed for following this man, Jesus, would come to be a follower of Jesus, and that man's wife would become a mother to him. Who knows what it was like when Saul became a believer? Raised a Pharisee of Pharisees, did that cause a division in his house between him and his mom and his dad? Did that end whatever connection and, re and relational reality he had with his own home when he became a follower of Jesus? We don't know. We'll find that story one day in eternity. But what we do know in Romans 16 is that this woman, Rufus's mom, Simon's wife, was a mother to him when he needed care. Regardless, she had no clue who he would be. No clue who he would end up being, the role he would play in the birth, development, the expansion of the gospel in the church. No clue that he would write the letters that we have. It didn't matter to her. She loved him anyway. And all that he needed, she loved him. So hear me this morning as we go on. 
all moms. Moms biologically, moms spiritually. All moms matter in God's story. You matter. He honors you in this. And I want you to hear that this morning because as we move on in the text, I'm not going to move out of the context of motherhood completely. I'm just going to expand it. I'm going to expand the context a little bit. And here's what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do that. I want you to understand that people in your life, people in your circles, people in your homes, your children, they're going to be shaped by how you live more than by what you say. So moms, dads, but really this is for all of you. The people in your life are going to be shaped more by how you live than what you say. Said another way, how you live, which means what they observe of you, mom and dad, what they observe of you at work, children's workers, youth workers, all of you, wherever you may be, what people observe of you, how you live, is going to speak louder than the words you say. So the reality and the question before us is, what are you passing on with regards to what it means to be human? What is the way that you are living, saying, passing on to them about what it means to truly live? What it means to truly thrive? I mean, this is what everything is all about. What are you showing them about what it means to be enough, to be sufficient? What is your life and the way you're living pointing them towards? Where are you pointing them to where those kinds of things can be found? Well, as we've been saying week in and week out for the last couple of months, that will all depend on the story that's shaping you. That will all depend upon the mental map that you are following towards what you understand thriving to be. And so this morning, with the time that we have left, we are going to explore something that's essential for you and I, and essential then for the generations to come when we talk about what it means to thrive, what it means to live, what it means to be truly human. But it's going to cut against the grain of our contemporary world. And here's the big idea we'll explore this morning. Thriving. Being human, truly human and thriving will require you to embrace limits. It will require you to embrace, not just acknowledge, but embrace limits. The story begins this way. If you've got your Bibles, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it, it begins with all things you may remember, formless and void, without order, with, without structure, without coherence, right? And then, as we saw for a few weeks going through that chapter, God began to bring order. He began to speak and put things in their place. 
He separated the light from the darkness. He separated the waters below from the waters above. He separated the expanse from the land, the waters from the dry ground. He, he began to set the, the lights in the sky to separate day from night. He began to put things in order, in their right place. But that order brought inherent limitation to them, right? Limitation came with the order. Now the waters don't flood into the lands. They were separated. They didn't consume the land anymore. It was in its place. The waters were in their place. The stars and the lights in the sky were in their place. There were boundaries. Planets just couldn't go anywhere they wanted. They had an orbit. Vegetation, all the plants, the trees, they grew according to the limits of the seasons. Right now there was night and there was day. And as the planets in our, in our own planet and the sun and the orbits began, now there was days and there were nights, there were months and there were years. There were seasons, there were cycles, there were rhythms. And they obeyed those rhythms. Those were limits. The animals that God created flourished and thrived within the habitat, within the habitat that he put them in, the, the boundaries that he put them in. Without the ordering which brought limits, which brought boundaries, without the loving setting of limits in the natural world, it would have remained void and formless. It wouldn't have thrived. You see, the limits that God placed in his created work, the, the boundaries, were part of God's loving plan for his creation, part of his plan for their thriving. They were for their good that what he created were thrive. That was the condition for their flourishing. So when we get to God creating humanity, creating male and female, Yes, he invested tremendous dignity in them. We've spent a lot of time talking about that the entire week last week, summing all that we've said up together into one. Invested tremendous dignity into them, creating them in his image and after his likeness, but they were still part of his created order. They were still created beings. And that createdness brings a profound humility. And it brings limitations. There were limitations of place. Adam and Eve aren't like God in the sense that they're omnipresent. They can't be everywhere all the time, whenever they want. Their physicality and their createdness and God's intention for their well-being brought limits of place to them. It brought limits of authority to them. Yes, God gave them dominion to steward his created work, to unfold the potential within his created work to God's glory, but there was limits to the authority they had. It was a delegated authority. They didn't have all authority. He had all authority. There were limits on them physically. They were put within a created world now that was taken shape by God's purpose, but had its own limits that set in place the days and the cycles of the sun and the moon. They had to breathe air. They had to drink water. They had to eat food. They had to sleep. They weren't machines, they were humans. And there were limits placed on them in their physicality. There were boundaries and, and, and limits placed on them to fulfill God's purpose for them and, and that's why he created male and female. 
One is not the other. They needed both in order to fulfill the purpose for which God had created them. There were limits even on their activity. Remember, God told them, of all that's here in the garden, you're free to eat. Just don't eat of that tree. Chapter 2, verse 17. Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You see, these limitations, just like the limitations we see in the rest of the created order, and, and, and you read it and you understand it. Yes, the planets are in their orbit. If they were to get out of their orbit, things would go awry. They are the condition for thriving. The same goes for you and I. The limits that are inherent to us being created are for our thriving. They were put in place by a wise and a good creator. They're there for our good, that we would truly live, that we would truly flourish, which makes what we've seen over the last several weeks in Genesis chapter 3 still increasingly devastating. Remember in Genesis chapter 3, an alternative story was introduced, an alternative story that would offer a new definition of what it meant to actually be human. It would offer a new map guiding them forward towards thriving. This entered into the story in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, through the words of the serpent. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Are God's limits actually for your good? Remember, it was here that doubt regarding the goodness of God's created purpose, the goodness of the inherent limits that come with God's created intention, the goodness as the creator himself, and ultimately the goodness of his word were being doubted for the first time. It was introduced here by the serpent. A new narrative, a new story was being insinuated It was the story of unlimited autonomy. A story that said, you're thriving, you're flourishing, the the good life for you comes this. These boundaries he's put around you, your thriving comes when the limits are removed. You see, in this story that was introduced, limits weren't seen for thriving. They were obstacles now to surmount. And as we've spent time in Genesis chapter 3, we understand the story. Adam and Eve bought the lie, and they transgressed God's good limits for their thriving as they simply began to believe they were obstacles to their true freedom which is fascinating because you understand as you go through the rest of the scriptures, and and oftentimes there are different words used to talk about sin, and the different words used to talk about sin are highlighting a different element of it, a different characteristic of it. And throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, you'll find sin talked about as a transgression. Have you ever heard that word before? It's a transgression. The Latin, it, it comes from two Latin roots. It means to go across and go, to go and to across, to cross something. It literally means to exceed proper limits. That's what sin is. And this alternative story that the serpent introduced, this new map to truly being human and thriving, 
was a map that began to say, God's limits for you are constraining you. You need to cross over them. It was a story of transgression. And it's been misguiding us ever since. As one writer said, for them in that moment, more fruit, more knowledge just left more suspicion. And now it's trickled down to us and more work and more things to do to try to earn for ourselves the things we'd already been given. A name, a relationship, a life, and a purpose. See, whether we like to admit it or not, we're we're all after some version of the good life. We're all following a, a mental map, as we've been talking about, so to speak, to what we think thriving is. And in each of our definitions, if we're going to be really honest, we, we've taken in this alternative story deeper into our hearts and to our souls than we may want to admit. But in each of our definitions, if we would just be still enough to listen and honest enough to listen, we're essentially trying to move towards a life where we get to do what we want, when we want, the way we want. Because that's freedom, right? That's the American story, isn't it? And freedom's a tricky word. In the right context, in a fallen world, freedom is a very good thing. In fact, I wish that there was a way that we could all take time in, in our year and in our life to go to a very difficult place in the world so that when you come back, you might better appreciate the freedoms that you have here that came at quite a cost to a lot of people in their lives, right? But freedom from the devastation of of tyranny in our history morphed into what we understand the American story to be now is the freedom from all limit itself. And when freedom in this big sense, it's a tricky word, I understand, but when when it morphs into a God, when it becomes an idol, it becomes the thing we bow down to. It becomes the thing that becomes first and foremost in our hearts. It becomes the thing with which we pursue. This was the heart of the alternative story in Genesis chapter 3. Individual ultimate autonomy. Life without limit. And so now, thriving is seen from the removal of all obstacles and limits that stand in our way of what we want and believe what we believe will make us happy. What I want, when I want, the way that I want it, and I should be able to have it and do it in that way because that's freedom. That's when I'll actually thrive. It leaves us in what sociologists like to call the land of more. More options, more work. More money, that's more freedom, right? In the fall, we we talked about it a little bit in the series we were in. We literally have the entire world in our hands with this device. And I don't even mean what it's capable of. Just the physicality of holding it begins to retell the story in our mind that everything's within my possibility. It's around me. I dictate it. I get from it what I want, when I want, the way I want it. That's how life should be. That's what thriving and flourishing looks like. As soon as I can get more of the obstacles out of the way, transgress the limits that stand in front of me, then I'll be truly free. Then I'll be truly happy. 
But does more actually mean meaningful? Does more in that sense actually equal meaningful? Does it equal thriving? I mean, that's what we all want. Even if we can't put our finger on it in our hearts, that's what we all want. There's a meaningfulness and a thriving that's inherently desired in each of our hearts, even if we can't put words to it. But this more and this story that we're following, it's, it's not leaving us satisfied. It's leaving us stressed and anxious and impatient and envious and competitive. Right? Less patience, less contentment, less sacrifice, less love, less rest. More is leaving us with less, ultimately less human. Just one more, though. One more project, one more hour, one more opportunity, one more moment. Just one more. It's the mantra of an addict. We're constantly on the lookout for ways to cheat or transgress the limits of being human in the pursuit of freedom that we think will lead us to thriving. We look for ways to hack time, hack speed, hack power, hack productivity. And in all of them, what we're doing is essentially working towards disconnecting ourselves from what it means to be human. We've bought into this idea that comes in this story that there's nothing that we can't have or do, nothing we can't work hard enough for, go into enough debt for, set enough goals for, work for, sacrifice more, just one more, and I should be able to have it. And when I have it, then I'm free. Then I thrive. But just one more is never going to be enough. One writer said, hustle and hurry are no longer what we do. They're a state of our soul. And in the land of more, when we think every option is open, what happens is we become crushed under the unbearable weight of trying to be God, which is something we weren't made for. Ada Calhoun, she's a sociologist, and she writes of, this is her quote, an experiment in crafting a higher achieving, more fulfilled, more well-rounded version of the American woman. And she wrote, that experiment has brought on higher debt, increased pressure with work and family life, throw in fluctuating hormones in midlife, and the results are more exhaustion, anxiety, depression, and sleeplessness. The experiment is wholeheartedly, by and large, a failure. She said, not only is the experiment a failure, but it leaves us believing as women we're failures too. We fail by not meeting our ideals and our ideas, and we've also failed by being deeply unhappy. She could have written that about the church. Because the Proverbs 31 woman did it all, didn't she? Right? Ran multiple businesses, raised multiple kids, took care of the house. You do realize, though, she had three generations of people in her house with her, right? Right? We've taken something that's beautiful and true and good, and we've Americanized it in the church. We've completely changed it. You realize culturally, and when the Industrial Revolution began, we took the kids and the husbands and the rest of the family out of the house and left mom there to do everything. 
And so we read that chapter and we look at that picture and we try to figure out how to fit it into our American story and it doesn't work. And this is the experiment she's talking about. She's talking about people outside the church, but it's just as true. It's an experiment in not being human and we're realizing it doesn't work. You see, if we say that the good life, a thriving life, is a happy life, and what makes us happy is our freedom, and then we define freedom according to the story in Genesis 3 of unlimited autonomy, then all of our increasing unlimited autonomy and options ought to make us happy and contented, right? But it's not working. The story of our unlimited autonomy, the story of our unlimited freedom, the story of just one more isn't bringing happiness. It's producing exhaustion and emptiness. Surprise. The devil lied. Right? He lied. It's what he does. His map doesn't lead towards your thriving. His story doesn't truly define for you what it means to be human. He's not going to lead you beside still waters and bring rest to your soul. His map is a false map to a false freedom, a false thriving. It ultimately leads to enslavement. It's a story that's constantly trying to tell you to transgress good limits, to transgress good boundaries. It's a story that then celebrates your willingness to transgress, a story that celebrates and honors your willingness to try to cheat the system into which you were made for bigger yields. Friends, listen, families, moms, dads, How you live is going to speak way louder than what you say. Are you mindful of what it is you're actually saying by how you're living? What story would your life, if we were to look at it in this way, say you believed led to what it meant to be truly human and to thrive? What map are you following? Ashley Hales wrote a fantastic book called The Spacious Life. She said, our freedom narrative in the West, choosing your own destiny according to your own sense of freedom, is leaving us in a sea of endless choice. We're lonely, exhausted, and unsure what success or joy even looks like anymore. She said, I've made the good life a cocktail of my endless personal choice, my ambition, and all of my hurry. I'd shaken them all up and added Jesus as a cherry on top. But Jesus won't exist there. I had to discover that he was the gentle shepherd leading me down a narrow way, the way that led to a more spacious life through a doorway I didn't want to enter. I had to deal with my limits. You see, friends, uh, freedom and, and thriving and the living that that God holds out to us. It's an entrance back into something more satisfying than the story of unlimited autonomy. 
something more satisfying than all the lies the devil has held out since the garden. You see, the limits that God placed on Adam and Eve, the limits that come with just being a created being, they were meant to remind them that they were creatures formed in the hands of a loving creator, one who knew them because he made them, knew what their limits were, knew what they needed, and knew what was best for them. That recognition of who they were, even as created beings, was ultimately meant to lead them in their hearts to worship of the one who had created them, who knew them and provided for them. These limits were a ready reminder every single day as the the sun would set and the moon would show and the skies would darken and they would have to lay their heads down. They were reminded in the necessity of their physical exhaustion and the need for sleep that they're not God. They were dependent created beings and they had limits and they needed air to breathe and sleep for rest and food to eat and water to drink and their loving creator continued to provide what they needed on their behalf. He never stopped, unlike them. He never stopped, and he never stopped providing. Friends, the same holds true for you and I, even on this side of the garden story. Our humanity and the limits that come with it are a gift. They're not a hindrance to our thriving, and they're not a hindrance to our happiness. They are part of what it means to be human. They are wound intricately into the story of the good life that God holds out for us. We were created by a good and loving creator who knows the extent of each of our individual limitations. He knows exactly what we need. He's never stopped providing for us. Our limits, and I'm talking about just the big E on the eye chart right now, just the fact that we're human and what it means to be human and what comes with being human. Our limits, but now on this side of the garden story, even the painful ones. Not just the limits that come with being physical and a body that needs to rest and be fueled and eat, but a body that's wearing down now and broken. A body that suffers disease. He knows the limits, even the painful ones, the suffering, the loss. He knows. But even these limits, these limits that have come because the alternative story was believed, these limits remind us even now that a day is coming when these limits will be no more. Even the painful limitation is reminding us that a day is coming when all that we know by faith will finally know by sight. And a day that's coming when every tear that's been shed because of these limitations, the suffering, the pain, the loss, will be wiped away. Right? Listen to Ashley Hales again. As God's creatures made in his image, we are all limited by our bodies, by our personalities, by our places, by our circles of relation, by those for whom we're responsible. 
We're limited in our power and authority by particular seasons of work and health and faith. We're limited in our time and our attention and our calling. Our God-given limits are, this is what she had to see for herself, are the doorway into truly living. What might happen if we tried embracing these limits as gifts for our flourishing rather than barriers to our success? This is what caught me, and this is why I read the book. She said, I actually think we'd find we were beginning to walk in the way of Jesus. Embracing these realities, embracing these limits is part of being human as part of what it means for us to begin to learn what it is to truly thrive, we might just find ourselves now walking in the way of Jesus, the one who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, held so tightly to, wasn't willing to condescend and take on human flesh to take on our physical limits, to be born of a woman, to to be that, man, that story of the development of a child in a mother's womb was true in every way for Jesus, every bit of it. That labor and delivery, it was true for Mary and Jesus, every bit of it. That needing to be nursed and held and cared for and comforted as a child, as an infant, as a toddler, it was true for Jesus. He who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be held so tightly to that he wasn't for our joy and to rescue us. He was willing to take on the form of man and all of its limitations, born just like you and I, because he loved us. It was an act of love towards us. You see, our humanity is something that he dignifies, yes, but it's the humility of our humanity and the limitation of our humanity, and even on the other side of Genesis 3, the brokenness that comes in our humanity that he redeemed. See, part of this great story that God holds out to us is you and I can begin to see our humanity and the limits that God put on us as good. They're part of his kingdom. They're part of his purpose. And when we begin to see them for what they are, we can actually begin to thank him for them. But I'm not sure that's what other people would see in the way that we live. We might be really good at telling people that but I'm not sure that they would see it in the way that we actually order our lives. I think if we're really honest, we're we're still a little caught up with just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. A little more time. A little more resource. A little more opportunity. A little more beauty. A little more this. A little more this. A little more this. And then, then I'll know it's enough. Then I'll know I'm enough. Friends, this is part of the alternative story that started everything down the wrong path in Genesis 3. Is your enoughness 
your sense of worthwhileness, your sense of being truly human and free, is it found in Jesus? Or is it still just one more? The next contract, the next zip code, the next enhancement. Do your kids need to get into the next school and get the next grade and make the next team and do the next thing? What do they see? What does it mean to truly live, to be enough and to thrive? Friends, the good shepherd invites us to learn his rhythms of grace, which lead us, even in our limitations, into a life of thriving. One of those things we even learn in the story in the beginning of Genesis, and we see throughout the scriptures, and we spent, I think, three weeks on back in the early fall, late summer, was the idea of the Sabbath. As we learn the rhythms of Jesus and grace, one of those rhythms is the Sabbath rest. On the seventh day, God stopped working in creation. He ceased, not because he was limited by his energy, limited by his creativity, limited by his capability. He ceased that he could look at what he had done and enjoy it, that he could enjoy the work of his hands. And he embedded that rhythm into created order and into the life of his people. So that for us, this rest is a day that we can set aside to follow his example, to stop and to delight. To delight in the world in which he has placed us, to delight in what he has provided for us, but above all, to delight in him. It's a rhythm, and I won't spend a lot of time talking about it. We, we did it. Maybe we'll come back to it later. But it's a rhythm that God embedded into the created order. See, this, this alternative story, this life of unlimited autonomy, this, this false story of freedom, it's a life out of rhythm. It's out of rhythm, and it leaves us ultimately empty. It's always trying to transgress God's given limits for our good. And it leaves us scrambling for feeling enough. It leads us to what we talked about right before Christmas, to a state of soul restlessness. It's like trying to fill a leaky bucket. Keep trying to put more in it. Save more, spend more, work more, worry more, whatever it is. But life keeps dripping away. And ultimately, it will leave you empty. Never feeling like you're enough. As a friend, as a mom, as a dad, as a husband, as a wife, as a Christian, as a human. Listen, the good shepherd knows the way. He wrote the map. He will lead you to the rest you need in the green pastures of his making. He will lead you to the cool living water that restores your soul. With him, you can begin to thrive. We sing it all the time, but it's true. We're all wandering sheep, easily lured down a dangerous and deceiving path. It's been that way since Genesis 3. We all need the rescue of the good shepherd who knows us because he made us, who knows what we need in his the only truly trustworthy one to lead us to truly living.
the one who's made us enough in himself. He calls us to his way. It's a narrow way. It goes through a narrow gate. But I want you to hear him calling you. Calling you to duck your head and to turn your shoulders and to make your way through that narrow gate. He is the gate. He even said it of himself, I am the gate and whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and they will go out and they will find pasture. They'll be truly human. They'll live. They'll thrive. Come, he says, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. You're human. Walk with me, Jesus said. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace and I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live. Freely, he said, and lightly. This is what it means to truly become human again. This is what the people in your life need to see from you. More than what we say, this is what people need to see. And it starts by you embracing your limits, even spiritually, by recognizing your need for Jesus, for the Good Shepherd. There isn't a one of you in here that can just make one more good decision, can just do one more good thing, can just make one more sacrifice that would ever on the basis of that action leave you standing before God in right standing. That's what righteousness means, right standing. There isn't a one more that you can do that would ever leave you in right standing before God. That's a limitation. The path to becoming human again starts by recognizing your need for the Good Shepherd and to hear his voice calling you in his way to him, through him. This limitation is a good thing because it and it alone is what leads you to see his steadfast love towards you, his rescue. Keep company with Jesus. Keep company with him. Learn what it is to truly live, to truly thrive, to become fully human. Let me pray for us this morning as we get ready to respond to God's word. Father, these stories that come at us all day long, they're, they're so tempting. They're so intoxicating. There's such a part of me that wants more. I I want more of just about everything I see. And and I I feel sometimes like it's insatiable. I find myself always left empty. 
Lord, what we need is for you, by the work of your Holy Spirit, to take that desire, which is a desire that you put in us, but to turn that thing towards you. That our desire to truly live and to truly thrive will be oriented towards who you are and continue to be for us, most particularly in your son. That we would want more and more of you. We want to live more and more with you. We would want more and more of your presence, more and more of your voice, more and more of the work of your spirit in us and through us, more and more of the thriving and the flourishing that you hold out for us as the good shepherd that leads us to your pastures. But we need to believe that story today and that story tomorrow and that story the next day. Lord, we need you by your Holy Spirit to make that story more alive and more real and more compelling and more intoxicating to our hearts today, tomorrow, and the next day. Lord, we need you to continue to do the work in our ears, to turn our, our ears off to the stories that would lead us towards enslavement, that would promise false things, that would tell us that we just jump this fence and transgress this boundary. Then we'd truly live. Then we'd truly thrive. That's where it's found. But make your story, the story of your steadfast love and the story of your mercy and the story of your son, more pleasing to our hearts and our ears than anything else. Lord, we ask that you would do this for your namesake and your glory, but for our joy. And we ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.